This morning I'll be reading from the Gospel of John, continuing on in our Lent series on the I Am sayings of Jesus. I'll be reading from John chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we moved to Drayton back in 2016, we couldn't go anywhere without putting the address in our GPS first. Every route was unfamiliar, and all those country streets have basically the same name. You don't know the difference between Wellington Road 8 Side Road 8, the 8th line, Highway 8. Anyway, we were very confused. (laughs) We were completely dependent on these turn-by-turn directions from our GPS to help us navigate this strange new place. This week I came across an article in the New York Times that talks about a study that was done on the brains of the famous hackney carriage cab drivers of London, England. These cab drivers go through a rigorous testing process before they can be licensed to drive these famous black cabs. This test is called the knowledge. In order to prepare for this test, one man, Matt McCabe, studied for three years by hopping onto his motor scooter every day, plotting routes from point A to point B, memorizing landmarks and street names in the rain and sun and snow. He logged more than 50,000 miles on his motor scooter and on foot as he studied for the test. So that's the equivalent of about two times around the earth. And an interesting thing happens to the brain of a cab driver. After years of experience, 
These folks can map out the best route between any two points in this complex city, always taking things like traffic and construction into consideration. Like they have a real sense of the dynamics of navigation, all the different factors. So unlike many Uber or Lyft drivers, you almost never see a hackney carriage cab driver pull out a GPS. And so there was a study done on the brains of these cab drivers, and it showed that the longer they were cab drivers, the part of their brain that's responsible for navigation actually began to grow. Their intimate experience with the city, with all of its rhythms, actually changed their brains, as if this dynamic city were actually imprinting itself on them. In our Bible story this morning, the disciples are asking Jesus for a map. They're asking Jesus to show them the way. We need to back up just a little bit to see how we got here, though. And so as we catch up this week again with Jesus and his disciples, we see them in Jerusalem, gathered around a table. See, we're reading from the part of John's Gospel where he gives an account of that famous Last Supper. But earlier in the week, Jesus had come into Jerusalem on a donkey. The people took their palm branches out to meet him. They were waving their palm branches, laying their cloaks on the ground for a royal entry to a royal city. And they sang that old psalm, that old hymn of praise to God for rescuing them from their enemies. They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But ever since that day, Jesus has been acting a little glum, even more cryptic than usual. He's been talking in cryptic ways about leaving them, about how his time had come to go back to the Father. And so as they lounge around the table for a meal before Passover, John doesn't give us the details of the meal itself, like some of the other gospel writers. What John wants us to see is the growing tension in the room. John wants us to see that Jesus is troubled. And so instead of giving the details of the meal itself, John shows Jesus locking eyes with Judas, dipping a piece of bread, handing it to him, telling him whatever you're about to do, just do it quickly. Of course, the thing Jesus was about to do was betray Jesus. John wants us to see the growing tension in the room. My children, he tells them, I'll be with you only a little while longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews so, now I tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. And then John shows us Simon Peter practically tripping over himself to make sure that Jesus knows just how committed he is. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you can't follow, but you will follow later. Well, that's not cutting it for Peter. He says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I would lay down my life for you, Jesus. Lay down your life for me. No, Peter. No, you'll disown me. Jesus hasn't been the same since coming into Jerusalem on that donkey. 
Now the tension is at an all-time high as he predicts how his disciples are going to fall away. Jesus has been talking about how he was going to leave them. These people had given up everything to follow Jesus. They believed he was the one God sent, the Son of God. And now his time had come to leave. I mean, they followed him to this point. Where was he going and why couldn't they go too? Jesus tries to calm their anxieties. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. But his reassurance actually just raises more questions. He says, you know the, place, the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas, with an edge of exasperation, maybe even a quiver in his voice, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? See, when Jesus was talking about his father's house with those many rooms, well, in the mind of a, of a Jewish person, that could really only refer to one place. Jesus must be talking about the temple. I mean, with it, it has those many rooms around the outside, these way stations where people could come and, and rest for a time. And they knew where that was. They could go there if they wanted. So why had Jesus insisted that they couldn't go with him? This whole exchange is incredibly confusing for the disciples. Like, Jesus must be talking about somewhere that's not on the map. Some place they had never been before. Jesus, just tell us how to get there. We're going to need some turn-by-turn directions. I've had this experience, too, of course, going to God, looking for directions. Just show me the right path. Turn by turn, that'd be great. After high school, it's God, show me the right university to go to. Show me the right friends to make. Show me the right major, the right career path. The right person to marry, the right time to have kids, the right way to raise kids. Turn-by-turn directions would be really great. And we've all prayed these prayers before. It's interesting to observe how this passage from the Bible has kind of been co-opted by Christian apologists. These people who want to defend Christian belief and show that Jesus is the exclusive way to God and no other religion can give salvation. Of course, I'm not arguing against that claim, but I want us to see that this passage is not in the first place directed outward toward other religions. Jesus is talking to his disciples. His disciples are the ones asking for directions, not people from other religions. This passage is about discipleship, not first of all about apologetics. The questions and struggles of the disciples are our struggles. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Just show us the right way. We are so hungry for practical turn-by-turn directions. Let's get the GPS all ready to go, set it up on the dashboard, and we'll be set. Show us the way to God-honoring finances. Show us the way to have a healthy Christian marriage. 
Show us the way to raise Christian children. Show us the way to a fulfilling vocation or the right school or the right career. God, if you could just give us turn-by-turn directions about how to be a good neighbor, how to navigate politics. Give us turn-by-turn directions how to navigate issues around gender and sexuality. We are every bit as anxious as Jesus' first disciples were for those turn-by-turn directions how to get where Jesus wants us to go. Show us the way is a request that doesn't only concern future eternal life. It's a request that we find in our own hearts in the present moment. For all those disciples anxiously looking for a map, wondering how they'll navigate their way to the Father once Jesus is gone, Jesus offers comfort and peace. Thomas had said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The commentator Elizabeth Johnson laments how this text has been often taken from its context and warped to be a trump card a threat, a warning to tell people you better get with the program, hurry up and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior if you want to be saved. To interpret the verse this way, she claims, is to rip it from its context and to do violence to the spirit of Jesus' words because this statement of Jesus is a promise and it's a word of comfort to his disciples, that Jesus himself is all they need. There is no need to panic. There's no need to search desperately for that secret map. This goes to my point earlier, that we need to hear this first of all in the context of discipleship. Jesus is the map they're looking for. He is the way. He is the truth and the life. The only way to get where you want to go, Jesus tells Thomas, is through me. If you know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, he says, you do know him and have seen him. But the misunderstandings don't stop there. Philip may be thinking he was just giving a yes and amen to Jesus. He says, yes, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. But Philip is only thinking in future terms, and that's his problem. As if Jesus showing them the Father is about something that would happen in the future, when they had arrived at this secret dwelling place of God. Get us to the destination safely, Philip says, so we can see the Father. That's all we want. It's a good and a heartfelt desire. But Philip hasn't understood what Jesus is saying See, Philip is still looking for those turn-by-turn directions to bring them to the Father, and Jesus is trying to tell them that they have been in the presence of the Father all along. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is telling them They're already on the way. They're already in the presence of the Father. That Jesus has been revealing the Father to them all along. 
See, they think they're going to get those GPS coordinates, those turn-by-turn directions. But Jesus is saying, no, we've been running these routes all along. If you see me, if you know me, if you have journeyed with me all these years, then you've already been plotting the routes. We've been by the landmarks. You know the street names. We've walked them on foot through rain and storms. We have logged the miles, people. And if you know me, then the Father has been imprinting himself on you as well. See, discipleship was never about getting that map to hold in your hands or getting those coordinates to plug into your GPS to get you to heaven. Following the way, the truth, and the life is about shaping one's mind in the present tense so that the character and the love of Jesus Christ, so that the character and the love of God is actually imprinted on your very being. In the book of Acts, we see that the early Christian movement was called the way. The way was not a roadmap for eternity, an end-time salvation questions. It was a present reality in the early church, a present reality imprinted with the path that Jesus himself walked. This was a path marked by self-giving love that did not grasp for power, The way, the truth, and the life, of course, entered Jerusalem with palm branches, was met with hope, hope that this would be the victorious Messiah that God had promised. And he would be that, but not in the way people expected. His way led on a path marked by suffering, by persecution, even by death. So, too, the way of the early church, they were met with suffering persecution, even death. But the one who is the way and the truth is also the life. And so the way of the early church was imprinted with this route into death, but it was a route that led through death and finally into life. This promise for life was not just a future hope of the early church. It was a present reality because the Spirit of God equipped Jesus' followers to do even greater things than Jesus himself had done. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus tells us again this morning, not I was the way, not I will be the way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. For all of us anxious disciples waiting for those turn-by-turn directions, waiting for God to show us the map to where we need to go, hear Jesus say, I am the way. That means that for as long as we have been walking with Jesus, God has been imprinting a map of the kingdom of God on our minds and our hearts, showing us the dynamics and the rhythms of the kingdom of God. So when I think about people who know the way, people who have those rhythms and dynamics of the kingdom of God imprinted on their lives. One very obvious example that comes to mind is Fred Rogers. His biographer, Maxwell King, describes a strong sense of self-discipline that permeated his life. 
He'd get up every morning between 4.30 and 5.30, and he'd study his Bible. And then he'd head off every day to the Pittsburgh Athletic Association for a swim. If you saw that film about Fred Rogers a few years ago, then you probably recall all those shots of him in the swimming pool every day. His biographer says that uh, Rogers' preparation was not so much professional as it was spiritual, that he would study the passages of interest from the Bible, and then he would visualize who he was going to see that day so that he would be prepared to be as caring and as giving as he could be. Fred's prayers in those early morning sessions were not for success, not for accomplishment, but rather for the goodness of heart, to be the best person he could be in each of the encounters he would have that day. That's what his biographer writes. Now, being the best person he could be, well, that's one way to put it. I think I'd say it a little differently. I think I'd say that what Fred Rogers was doing was visualizing the map of the kingdom of God that God had imprinted on his very being from all those years of following Jesus. Every morning, he would map out the way, the way to show love like Jesus would, the way to show humility like Jesus did, the way to make each person feel like a cherished creation of God. That was his first and most important truth that he wanted to communicate to all the kids who watched his show. Now, Fred Rogers is something of a modern-day saint, kind of in the informal Protestant usage of the term. His example might seem unattainable. But dear people of God, he has no secret formula. Fred Rogers has no secret map. He has been formed and shaped, impressed upon by the same Jesus who comes to us today. By following Jesus, we know that whatever the route is, it's going to take us into the neighborhoods of those people who society calls outcasts and lost causes. We'll get where we are going by taking the main street, which of course must be named love. And that street named love may be lined with palm branches and a red carpet, but make no mistake, it will lead to a place of self-emptying, a place of sacrifice and humility. But journeying with Jesus means that the map of the kingdom of God has been imprinted on our minds and our hearts so that God shows us the way from death to abundant life in the presence of the Father. And so in all of our anxieties and all of our questions about where to turn, which direction to go, how to get to the place where God wants us to be, the way, the truth, and the life so forms and shapes our minds and hearts so that Jesus can say to us, people of God, you know the way. Thanks be to God, for the way is his Son. Amen. Let's pray. Son of David, you entered Jerusalem with a triumphal procession that led to you being alone in humiliation on the cross. 
We thank you for your selfless sacrifice, for showing us the way of self-emptying love, and for sending your Spirit, who now guides us and sustains us as we follow your way. Amen.